Welcome to the holiday episode of Forever White Belt. I'm your host, Adolfo Ferranda. What a perfect way to end the year with one of my heroes, a pioneer of the art, and godfather of the Kimura Trap system, David Avalon. 100 years before I started jujitsu, I bought two DVD sets. Yes, I said DVD sets, just to get an idea of what jujitsu could offer. One of them was David's Kimura Trap system. It was fantastic and holds up to this very day. David and his brother Marcos were early pioneers in the evolution of jiu-jitsu systems thinking, jiu-jitsu online marketing, and they predate the term MMA with what they used to call it, no-holds-barred fighting, of which they participated in. David has grappled all over the world and has wins against other legends like Rafael Lovato Jr., Roberto Cyborg Abreu, Henner Gracie, and Alexander Jean-Jay Ibero, among others. Today, they still own highly acclaimed Freestyle Fighting Academy in South Florida, which they opened in 2001, and David also consults some of the best combat athletes in the world out of his new Las Vegas location. It was such an honor to have David on the show. He's such a wealth of knowledge, and in this episode, we discuss his observations on training methodologies, nutrition, mindset, and so much more. We could have went on for hours and hours. David will be back on the show for sure, and there is so much more value he can offer us. In the meantime, check him out at davidavalon.com for all his socials and product offerings. Now some housekeeping items. In the episode, we refer to the original Camaro Trap System DVD box set, which I hold up a few times, but obviously, on audio, this may lose some context. Also, just a reminder, please give us a positive review on iTunes and check out our Forever White Belt merchandise at teespring.com forward slash forever dash white dash belt. And become a patron by clicking the support button at the anchor.fm Forever White Belt web page. Also consider joining our community on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash forever white belt. And check us out on all the socials by searching for Forever White Belt. And with that, I give you David Avalon. Welcome to Forever White Belt. I am your host, Adolfo Ferranda, here with a very special guest, and you are... David Avalon, ADCC bronze medalist, currently living in Las Vegas, and one of the co-founders of the Freestyle Fighting Academy. David, I'm so, so thankful and happy to have you on the show. You don't know what a big part of my jiu-jitsu journey, really, that you've, you've had on me. Your origin. Tell us about the beginnings of David and to where you're at now, because, man, it's been quite a long road for you. I got into martial arts for self-defense purposes. My brother and I, we were in high school. We saw a kid get just ruthlessly beaten down, knocked out, unconscious, and uh, nobody helped him. There were security guards, teachers all around, and everybody just sat and watched. So my brother and I looked at each other as the new kids in the school, like, man, we got to learn how to fight. Mm. <laughs> this could be us next. So we got started with the Bruce Lee. We saw Bruce Lee in all the movies. We're like, oh, we're going to do what Bruce Lee does, which was Jeet Kune Do. And uh, we practiced Jeet Kune Do for about like a year and a half, pretty much daily. The place we were training at was more of the art form, not for practical use, I would say. And my brother started dating a girl who was a Taekwondo black belt. He got offered to spar there. Wow. And the highlight of the, or the low light rather, was he got step sidekicked by some 50 year old overweight black belt, launched into a wall, and then sat down with a painting falling on top of his head. <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> yeah, so shortly after that, we're like, uh, we're done with Jigundo. And uh, we were getting frustrated too because we were watching the early UFCs, you know, like 1993, 1995. And whenever right. a Jigundo fighter would get in, we would be rooting for them, but they always mm-hmm. lost. And they were like, and what? Who are winning? At that time, the wrestlers started to take over, like Dan Severn and Mark Coleman. So we're like, you know what? Let's get into wrestling. And uh, that started our journey. That's what I considered, like, really for me, it's like the turning point of my life. And probably for my brother as well, he would say, we'd be getting into wrestling. It's the first time that I was ever really physically challenged, mentally challenged, like pushed all sorts of limits that I thought that I would never break and just crush them. 
You guys seem like early martial artists. Were you guys any into team sports or anything like that? No. So I, I that's the thing. Like I, I didn't have an athletic bone in me previously. I was always kind of big, like for my weight. Like I, in third grade, I was 130 pounds. So yeah, that's a, and I wasn't tall or anything like that either. Yeah. I was just like, pretty fat. <laughs> yeah. Right. A lot of heavy bones. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> and I was very shy growing up. So I was a natural target for bullying. But mm-hmm. since I was bigger, I always handled myself and. My brother and I, we always got into like scraps, you know, from people trying mm-hmm. to bully, bully me primarily. I had a lot of rough and tumble stuff growing up, like pretty much every year of grade school, I got into a fight. It was mm-hmm. usually like one fight and then afterwards everybody backed off because they knew it was going to go well. But I never did team sports. I never joined the football team, basketball mm-hmm. team or anything like that. Wrestling would be the first team sport. Yeah. And it wasn't as like you, I didn't come in there like, oh, I started crushing everybody. I, it wasn't like that at all. It was funny, in fact, how I got kind of roped into it because I told you like, oh, we jumped in right after not doing Jeet Kune Do. It wasn't really that smooth, that transition. It was more like what happened. My brother was my ride to go home. To walk home, it would take me about like an hour. But, and where uh, was this on my, the East Coast? This was the East Coast somewhere, right? Yeah, this was in Miami. So we're in Miami. Oh, okay. It's going to Killian High School, Cougars. Yeah. And uh, my brother got uh, pulled in by a friend to go into a wrestling tryout. They were doing uh, trials of Killian. And my brother's like, oh, I'm going to do this wrestling tryout. You want to do it? I was like, uh... I'm like, I got to walk for like an hour or train the wrestling thing. I'm like, the wrestling thing's probably going to be easier. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> Once I did the first practice and got smashed, like we just kept coming back. It was like glutton for punishment. And our wrestling coach, Tirso Balls, he had just finished Lock Haven, which is a very prestigious college here for wrestling. It's where Kerry Colott came from. So he ran the practice really hard. Like I'm looking back through like all the training experiences I've ever had. Mm-hmm. And those are still probably some of the most difficult ones I've ever done and those were in high school that's that my introduction to like combat sports it's like pull on blast every day we start with three mile indian runs sprints pull-ups and then you would get into the wrestling mats and then you would start doing the wrestling practice or just shots and shots and shots and yeah so our team i married that the first day you could barely fit everybody on the mats because everybody was trying out by the end of the season there was like nine people in there and the full squad's 13. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, that sounds about not, right. Yeah, not a lot of people survived. There was other teams that, that were other schools that wrestling was a lot more popular that had like two lines of JV squads. Mm-hmm. We couldn't even fill up a varsity squad. Everybody in the team never gassed. I remember my brother and I were kind of similar in the sense that we were probably losing the first two periods. But if we were within a few points in the third period, it was over because we would just outpace our opponent and beat them by just endurance. After that wrestling, my brother is a year older than me, so he finished. There's no college wrestling in in Florida at the time because of Title IX. And he looked around and he found somebody who was doing NHB training, you know, no holds barred, the predecessor to the term mixed martial arts. Mm -hmm. It it didn't exist yet back in 1998. So he found this guy, Randy Ibera. Uh, He's not particularly famous. You you probably won't really find much if you Google him, but he was really ahead of his time. He was a judo black belt, taekwondo black belt, uh, Japanese jiu-jitsu black belt. He had done seminars under Hicks and Gracie. He was doing boxing, kickboxing. This was all before, again, mixed martial arts even existed yet, really. So he was really ahead of his time. And uh, 
my brother started training under him. And after a couple of months, my brother is telling me, hey, David, you got to get into this. And I was still a year left in wrestling. I'm like, nah, man, I, you know, I'm a wrestler. You know, this is my thing. And then he challenged me to roll with him. And then he arm barred me like four or five times and rear naked choked me. And I got really pissed. I'm like, okay, and I'm done with wrestling. <laughs> I come back. I'm not going to stand for me getting smashed by my brother. <laughs> and uh, true to my word, a year after I finished wrestling, I jumped in and uh, I started training. I remember the first training session was ground and pound drills and heel hooks. So <laughs> I was doing all the dirty stuff, neck cranks, heel hooks, all the, the ground and pound things that, and again, this is 1999 at this point now. I got about a year, two years with Randy. And then unfortunately he moved away. And then it was just my brother and I. And at that point, we were just training each other. My brother had started like a little club, we call Avalon Grappling from his ex-wife's Taekwondo gym. And we would do it like, I think like a couple times a week. And we started building a small gathering of people there. It was maybe like nine or 10 guys who were crazy enough to train. And keep in mind, this is still 1999. UFC is not really popular. Nobody really knows what grappling is. It's really hard to get people in. My brother, he probably stood, he made like a little flyer and put him out there. And he was at the gym, like it was like an eight o'clock class. So he would wait there for like 30 minutes and then leave when nobody would show up. And it was probably, I think he said like 40 or 50 days of just waiting there until finally one guy showed up, Robert Mallon. And then it started to slowly build momentum from there. And probably enough, Robert still trains with us, you know, so it's pretty cool, first student ever. It was very difficult, you know, so you were just like, and we're also very young. I yeah. was 18, my brother was yeah. 19. We didn't have any belts really, right? Yeah. So when people like, oh, what belt are you? We're like, oh, we're not really ranked. It's like, oh, well, my cousin's a brown belt in judo. Is he better than you? And we're like, oh, step in and we'll find out, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. So we had, that's why my brother and I, we, we kind of became Ronin and we just started yeah. looking at grappling magazines, video, VHS tapes, which for the younger kids are, I don't, DVDs are out of date now. I don't even know how you compare yeah. it. I know. It's like, a, it's like a USB stick, right? Yeah, it's a yeah, whole yeah. video. Right? God, I don't think people can really grasp. You kind of say it, this is 1998. I don't think people can grasp how out of the norm all of this was. Each step that you guys took. And even having the nerve or audacity or confidence to open an academy, if you will, within a school or something to offer that without any kind of official ranking. Because even back then, it was, you know, it was tough to find black belts and stuff at that time. You got your black belt under uh, Professor uh, Ricardo Tessier. Era, right that's correct okay yeah. and so how did that process go so all right we fast forward quickly through history once we opened up our school we started doing some cross training with two other fighters that we had both competed against mike cardoso and Efren ruiz and uh we would they had their own school called extreme jiu-jitsu at the time so we would go back and forth in open mats where we would go to their open mats and then they would come to our open mats and uh, we trained and pretty much they had no wrestling skills and we didn't know the traditional side of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And mind you, they were very skilled, but they were also kind of Ronin. I think Mike was technically a blue belt and he had competed in the ADCC before. (laughs) (laughs) And then Efren was, uh, I think, a purple belt. And they were just kind of stuck there. They didn't really have anywhere to go because nobody would, uh, uh, I guess nobody wanted to take them under their wing. So we would like exchange knowledge with each other. And eventually they ended up joining our school. We merged our programs together and they became part of the uh, FFA for a time. And I forget who met with Ricardo, but eventually Ricardo came in the picture and he started training with us. Over a period of time, we did some gi training, but like I said, I really like a handful of sessions. You know, I wouldn't consider myself an expert at all, especially since I've probably forgotten everything they've <laughs> shown me at that point. <laughs> 
but I did learn enough to work my way to a black belt level and as did the, the others, Mike and whatnot. But yeah, I pretty much just crammed as much as I could. I mean, I could, you know, beat people in the gi. Well, at least back then. Now with the lapel guards and all that stuff, it's probably <laughs> going to be a whole lot more complicated. Right. But yeah, I, I would say more than anything, it's like a no gi black belt. Personally, I think that's what I would call it. Like I said, you you guys are the the early astronauts with the uh, systems and concepts, and you probably most famous known for for this guy right here, which I have uh, uh, Kimura yeah. Trap System. <laughs> I, I, I got this like a hundred years ago in the seventies. I think we, you guys are still wearing bell bottoms in it and everything, you know. <laughs> no, um, and I think this was one of the first uses that I saw of something called a system. Oftentimes there were just moves and techniques, these random techniques and things like that. And you guys really put together a comprehensive sort of, as you say, a Kimura trap system. So you're the godfather of Kimuras, what a lot of people like to refer to you as. And now, today in the transition now, you've seen this explosion of concepts and systems. What, what are your thoughts on that? The seed you planted and, and seeing all these systems and concepts grow out of that, or at least be influenced by your what you guys have done. Yeah, well, it's... I can't take all the credit for it, of course. Just to get that course out there wouldn't happen without my brother, and it would have happened without Lloyd Irvin as well. He was right. responsible for teaching me how to do internet marketing and learning the ropes of it. And he also was one of the people who helped promote that course extensively, as mm -hmm. well as others like Stephen Whittier and mm -hmm. all sorts of people that got involved in it. It was the first like major launch of a course at that time like before nobody everybody was just going through like, like panther videos or whatnot as if you're an instructor and you would give them a, they would give you a flat fee or something and then you would just walk away with it and i had actually done an affiliate launch for the kimura trap system back that was in like august 2012 if i remember correctly and uh yeah we i mean i crossed the door we sold out in the within three days. Um, wow. And uh, it was a major game-changing thing for me because I realized, man, I can make my living doing this now. You know, like, and this is a way that I can reach so many people. You know, like, wow, even back then. Even back then, yeah. And after that launch, then everybody saw that and they started jumping in. And then, you know, everybody started doing these types of launches now and it became a thing. I remember Michael Zanga was in on that affiliate launch as well. He was a smaller fish back in the day. Now, <laughs> he's a monster. He's done amazing things with the BJJ fanatics, you know? Yeah. Those guys were in there early on, you know. So the, the actual proliferation of internet and online courses is something I think is fascinating in itself. I'll get to the systems in the question. I just think it's fascinating. Mm -hmm. because I, I talked to my, my friend Robert Drysdale when we do our podcast as well. I think our sport is unique in the sense that we're the one place that you can go to as a sport that you could actually learn from current world champions. Mm -hmm. and see what they're doing. Mm -hmm. You don't get that in football, basketball, baseball. It doesn't really exist as a market, you know, because I think for the most part, those are mostly spectator sports. Mm -hmm. So like those athletes are probably not, first, they're kind of not incentivized to market because they won't make that much or compared to what they could do. And perhaps they feel they're going to give away some competitive advantage that their opponents could take, which would cost them more. I don't know. Mm -hmm. That's the only thing. But in our sport, most of the money is made through people who actually practice, right? Spectators, mm -hmm. for, particularly for jiu-jitsu, are not really paying the bills. It's competitors are paying their dues or they're buying gear or they're, or they're buying their training. Mm -hmm. So like marketing to competitors or to practitioners is very valuable in our sport. 
you know, and it makes these instructional courses worthwhile. And uh, I think it's amazing. You're going to have someone like Gordon Ryan, who's crushing everything right now, and he's telling you exactly what he's doing. That's pretty unique, you know. So I, I think that's amazing. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a really cool time to be uh, someone who's practicing martial arts because to get that type of knowledge back in the '90s was impossible. First of all, you didn't have the internet in the way it is now, where you can access video quickly or whatnot. I mean, it's really changing the game. So I think that is cool. And I, I was able to be a part of that early push. But as far as the systems, I come from my engineering background. I graduated magna cum laude from FIU as an electrical engineer. Wow. And engineering is all about systems, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And I've always been engineering minded. Even when I was in high school wrestling, I would make flow charts of the moves I would do and like my mm -hmm. game plans. Like what's plan A, what's plan B, what's plan C. I've always tried to eliminate thinking because thinking is the slowest thing you can do in combat. And if you think about it, pun intended, right? If you're in a test and you have to think, that means you weren't prepared, right? Because when you know something, you just do it. Like if I ask you what's five plus five, you don't have to go like one, two, three, four. Right. Right. Because that would be thinking, right? right? You already know it. You go 10, boom, it just pops out. Right. That's how you want all your moves to flow. It should just pop out. But that only comes with proper preparation. So if you're able to systematize things beforehand, you've done all the thinking in advance. So now when you get into combat, everything just flows. And the only time you have to think is if you got put in a situation you weren't ready for or hadn't prepared for yet. That's why I spend a lot of time trying to systemize everything I do so I don't have to think. I can just... I'll go much faster than anybody else if I'm able just to flow constantly. But of course, as the game gets more complicated, and particularly when you're sparring or fighting people that you've never fought before and they come from a very different style, you're probably going to end up being put in a situation where you're not prepared, right? But ultimately, we want to try to get everything into the system. So I know when I started playing around with Kimuras, the actual impetus of getting into it was in ADCC 2007, I had fought in four matches and in four matches i ended up getting about 60 minutes over 60 minutes of uh, mat time on matches that were supposed to be 10 minute regulation and what ended up happening i just kept getting into overtimes my first match i won in regulation 10 minutes second match i lost in double overtime to tarsus third match i beat zanje triple overtime and then fourth match i lost to drysdale in overtime so it's like 10, 20, 25, 15. And I remember like after the first overtime match I did, my grips were totally gone. I had no grip strength. I couldn't grab anything. Everything to me was, I just had to pass and like work off takedowns. I had to win by points because like I wasn't going to be able to choke anybody or get a submission. But I then looked, I'm like, man, like I'm going to have a hard time winning the absolute because I'm going to be working so much harder than anybody else who is actually finishing people, right? So I look back, I'm like, I need to reevaluate my game and make it finishing based because I was looking at the guys that were winning like Roger Gracie or, you know, Robert, for example, Robert tapped everybody else out except me, right? So he didn't have to spend a lot more time in that mat. So he was able to be fresher and get into the later rounds because as you know, tournaments are not really fair. <laughs> if you have a grueling first match, and your opponent has an easy first match. When you go into that second match, you're at a disadvantage. Right? You can't help it. So you want to try to minimize your disadvantage as much as possible, which is going to be done through finishing people. And uh, I started looking at my game and I'm like, okay, I need a way of getting people reliably submitted. And I have always believed in the power of specialization as well. So, but, so I'm like, I want to specialize in a submission so that regardless of what position I'm in, I can get to it pretty quickly. It's like a clutch move, you know? So for me, wrestling, like sweep single leg was my takedown of choice when I was in high school. I would always go to that because you didn't really need to set it up if you're quick enough and you 
can always go for it at least, right? So I'm like, what submission could I use that I can pretty much go off from anywhere and as many positions as possible? So that's when I made those infamous mind maps, right? I made one, I'm like, okay, what submissions can I do from the guard, from the mount, side mount, north, south, from top, from bottom? And arm bar was really high up there as far as versatility, but above it, the ultimate one was the Kimura. The Kimura was the one move that you could pretty much do from everywhere. I could do it from inside my guard, I could do it if I'm inside your guard, I could do it from back mount. You know, I could do it from everywhere. So like if I was going to specialize in a move, it would make sense to make it the Kimura because I will have a higher odds of being in a position where I could use it if I had to. And particularly when I realized the concept of what now I call the Kimura trap, which is that uh, a lot of people mistake it as a position, you know, which is probably referred to as the TV position, or some people call it the T position, right? But that's not the Kimura trap. That's just TV position to me. The Kimura trap is a concept of using the Kimura grip as just that, a grip, not just a submission hold. And when you realize that it's the most powerful grip you can have in the com in combat, then it opens up lots of things like sweeps, submissions, transitions, you know, and all sorts of things. So that's the idea behind the Kimura trap. When I unlock that, then I'm like, man, what can I do with this? And I remember as I started exploring it, I was like, okay, I can do Kimura to the back, Kimura to armbar. And then I started saying, well, I could do Kimura to head searches, and Kimura to triangle choke, Kimura to inverted triangle, Kimura to heel hook, Kimura. Like, this is an amazing move, right? And then I'm like, okay. And I, as I started working in my gym, I started making this chart. And that's the one that you guys all have now. Like, okay, I started adding moves to it. And I would use certain people as guinea pigs. I'm like, okay, I'm going to try to do as many Kimura things as I could to this one guy. Right, that was Jason Suarez, because now he's a, one of my black belts, 14-0 MMA fighter. And I would just go doing different things. I would give some of my students projects, like, okay, get this and try to do something with it, you know, and just see where it goes. And I had a period of about three months where all I would do is Kimuras. I would not allow myself to do any other move besides a Kimura. And that helped expand my reach significantly with it. And once I had it in-house, I remember I sat in it for about like a year or two before I actually got it up because I was working on this back in 2000, or I sat in it for like five years. I started working on it like in 2007. The system came out in 2012. So I was trying, kind of doing that same thing. I'm like, well, I don't want to show everybody <laughs> my goodies just yet, you know? But after a certain amount of time, like, you know what? Cat's out of the bag. I got I want to get in front of this and, and just let people start using it. I know on your site, there's blowout sale for DVDs right now, offloading of that stuff, because no one has uh, a way to play these things anymore, right? Yeah. That's actually, that's a collector's item because I don't have any more of those left. Those went wow. really fast. Yeah. But you so know what's amazing no about this, David, is that it's timeless. It's like evergreen. You know, this stuff is still mm -hmm. applicable. Oh yeah, and uh, one thing I've always done with the course, and the, one of the reasons I like the online courses a lot better, besides the fact as a business owner, I don't have to hold inventory, which you know sure. is not really a good position to be in, right. and the technology is obsolete. The fact mm -hmm. it, that I can update online courses mm -hmm. like this, mm -hmm. right? So like the DVD set as it is, it's four and a half hours. Mm -hmm. It's great stuff. All of it's still mm -hmm. legit. Yeah. But I've made lots of updates along the way, and on the online course, I, I just push it, and it's in there. So I've added now seven hours of content to it. Wow. So I've, Jeez. I've, I've refilmed the whole thing right. with new takes on how I did it. So I had that up there. I filmed myself during seminars and I put those. I filmed like I see like uh, Keenan when he did like the inverted triangle off the TV position to like Dean Lister, put mm -hmm. that in there, you know. So like whenever I see new things, I'm at them on there. So the course is kind of. You know, as you said, it's evergreen, but actually it's growing, you know, it's like, it's yeah. still, it's wow. still becoming, you know, a thing. So, and people don't have wow. to pay extra for that. You know, you get it once and 
That's it. You're in. What's the website of uh, that one? Thanks for the plug. Yeah. It's kimoratrap.com. Yeah. Oh, okay. What's more important in terms of priority, do you think? Uh, drilling, rolling, or like positional sparring? Learning, to me, has four phases. The way they would go is observation, practice, drilling, sparring. And pretty much the first time you encounter something is an observation, right? So we take the classroom example. Coach comes in, he steps in, hey guys, I'm gonna show you guys the arm bar. And you're observing the technique and you're trying to get a concept of what this technique is by watching someone do it. Then, okay, guys, go ahead and practice it. So you second phase of learning is practice where you're actually gonna do the technique. But the first time you do this technique, you have to think. So practice is the execution of technique while thinking. It's clumsy, it's not smooth, but you're learning to coordinate your, your body with the, the movement. It's counting and to 10, like is, you said before. One, two, exactly. three, four. Yeah. Yes, exactly. You're counting to 10 and you're learning how to like what the concept of this move is. When you go to drilling, phase three, drilling is the execution of your current understanding of the technique at 100%, right? And drilling is what builds speed and to an extent proficiency in the move where you mm. kind of develop that muscle memory yeah. of, okay, boom, boom, and I get reps. It's also the most difficult part when done properly. It should be in a very intense workout, right? If I'm doing double leg drills, it should be grueling, you know? Mm. It's not a, like, if you can talk while you're drilling, you're not drilling, you're practicing, mm. right? So drilling is very difficult. And you could develop a lot of strength, a lot of speed, a lot of power, a lot of endurance through drilling. Is so, that what uh, would develop also fluidity? For sure. Okay. You, again, drills can be very, very. People, when they think drills, I know like <laughs> my friend Kidale always likes to bag on drilling, right? But yeah. uh, <laughs> I would argue with him about that. And we have. I think mm -hmm. drilling is very effective because there's all f different forms of drilling. Drilling doesn't just have to be, okay, double leg drills and the guy just standing like a robot, mm -hmm. right? Drilling can mm -hmm. be orchestrated. Like I say, I'm going to shoot the double, you're going to sprawl, and then I have to reshoot, cut the corner, and finish, right? Mm -hmm. There's always a level of orchestration, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, it doesn't solve all the problems of learning a technique, but mm -hmm. it gets a lot of them, right? Mm -hmm. And it gets the stuff that's hard to, to do otherwise. But that's what the final phase of learning is, which is mm -hmm. sparring or live execution, where now I'm going to do this technique to my best of my ability against a resisting opponent. And what the sparring is going to do is going to give you, it's going to feed back onto phase one of observation. Because after the sparring session is over, you're going to look back in your memory and think, how did that, that double leg go? Did I do it well or did I get countered? If I got countered, why did I get countered, right? That feeds into step two, practice. Okay, I got countered because I had my neck drop. Now I got to fix that. And you're thinking your way through the errors you made to perfect and create a new concept of what this technique is. And then we're going to drill to reinforce that new concept. And then you spar again and see, did it work or not? So there's a feedback loop. And that's what sparring it does for you. It gives you feedback. It lets you know what works, what doesn't, and allows you to observe that and then go in. So like my brother and I, we would, we would use video cameras on our early training sessions. And we would just film each other training so that we can spot things easier than relying on memory, which is very fallible. Sure. Especially nowadays, it's very easy to do. So to answer your question, those are four phases of learning. Where do I hold has the most weight? I think you're gonna spend the most time in drilling because okay. drilling is probably the safest, well, not the safest, but it's definitely safer than sparring. If I sparred two hours at 100% intensity, I'd be broken. It's just, it would be difficult, especially if you're doing striking. But I can drill for two hours. I'll be exhausted, but I'm not going to be hurt. So because our bodies are, 
or get one entire, you can't spend all your time sparring. You'll take too much damage. So drilling is your next closest substitute. And you get to, you can make your drills as sophisticated as you want. For example, you're talking about positional drilling. That's a good way to drill to start in a particular position, work a particular escape, hmm. or do live situations for certain mm-hmm. positions. But uh, I believe drilling is the most important thing. All the champions that I know of, you know, like Andre Galvao and not, are heavy drillers for a reason, because the way that they're training, they can't spar 100% all the time. Your body mm-hmm. won't hold up, you know, it just won't. It's very intuitive from a striking perspective, because if you spent all your time sparring and striking, you would never make it to the ring. You know, you'd be broken before you got there. What do they do? Lots of bag work, lots of pad work, footwork drills. And of course, they do sparring, but the sparring usually is like once or twice a week. Mm-hmm. Then depending on the level of intensity, if you're doing a really high intense sparring, you're probably doing once a week because you can't take that much damage to your head without having consequences. So I think grapplers think that they're immune to that, but they're not. Your, your body has the same wear and tear. But the level of intensity that certain people grapple at is very different as well. If you're a hobbyist, you're not grappling at the intensity that a competitor is. Mm-hmm. Like even now, like when I grapple, I haven't grappled at 100% intensity probably like in like seven years. I just haven't. I know like some people say, oh, grappling's not a fight, right? I, I, and they don't like the idea when someone says, oh, I'm, I'm getting into a fight, you know, whatever. And they're doing a grappling event. I, I get that, that there's a difference, but it depends on who you're talking about. Because mm-hmm. if you're getting to a grappling match with me, it's going to feel like a fight to you. Because I'm going to be going 100%. Like the idea to me behind competition, all competition in general, is that I'm trying to end this person in front of me by any legal means necessary. Whether it's a fight where I get to use hands, kick elbows and whatnot, it's grappling, it means I just can't strike you, but I'm still trying to end you. So the emphasis is the same. And I've been hurt more in grappling than I have in fighting in MMA. Mm-hmm. The worst thing that happened to me in a fight, I got a flash KO in my last fight with, I think, Aaron Simpson. You know, mm-hmm. And I popped back up, but you know, it was over already. And that was the worst thing that ever happened to me in MMA. Or a broken nose. I've broken my nose three times in wrestling. Once in MMA, I've had my knee messed up multiple times in grappling, mm-hmm. you know, shoulders, all sorts of things. Like I said, the intensity level of the grappling varies. Some people are like, oh, I spar all the time in training. I'm like, yeah, okay, yeah, but your sparring is very light. Like your sparring is a is like a flow roll to me. If you, I, I see guys that spar hard, hard, like you could see like I think like Andrew Galvao or like Hamol Bahal, they go at it. Right. <laughs> yeah, they do. <laughs> I, I I don't know for certain, but I would I would bet good money that they don't do that every day. Not without, you know, some magic formulas or whatnot, because it, it's just very hard in the body. That's part of the reason to me why drilling becomes important. The other reason that drilling is important is you're not going to be able to get into those positions that often in sparring because the guy is not going to let you get into them. For example, let's say I want to drill a double leg entry from an arm drag. I can drill that and get 100 executions in, in about an hour or so. I'm not going to get that many times to do that in a sparring match. I'm just not going to have the opportunity. The guy is not going to let me just sit there and arm drag him, right? I might get one or two. But how has those one or two repetitions made me faster or stronger or more proficient at getting that arm drag to double? Not much. I would have gotten more proficiency by executing that movement 100 times and then I go into the, the sparring and my double is going to be a lot better. Mm-hmm. That's why the, the drilling is important. It gives you a lot more time to work on a particular area that you can't get in sparring because the guy's not going to let you get there. Particularly if you're working very specialized positions. You're not going to get those specialized positions very easily or very often. You're only going to be able to get high proficiency through a lot of drilling. The part that the sparring is going to bring out more is to an extent timing. 
right? Because you have to find the right position in the right moment to execute. But you can get those things in drilling too. You can create randomness in drilling. We used to do things where my brother would blow a whistle at a random point and that's when you would go, right? Mm -hmm. So you're still getting timing elements or you can flash the lights on and off, you know? You can do different things to, to make a signal to go to develop timing. So drilling doesn't have to be as static or as monotone as a lot of people think it is. You just have to, you have to be a little creative and think outside the box. So David, if you could be a white belt again, or if you had to be, what would you do differently? You see, my white belt path was very different from most. We have reinvented the wheel, right? It's a lot of things mm-hmm. that my brother and I did that we had to do because we didn't know better. And there's certain benefits that come with that. One, sometimes it gives you unique innovations because Mm -hmm. you're solving a problem in a different way than everybody else did. And once you solve a problem in a particular way, it's hard to solve it in another way sometimes, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm happy that we had that experience, but it wasn't the most efficient one, obviously, because I can produce guys that were much better than me and like, a tenth of the time now. So I would tell white belts, if I was gonna coach myself, you of course you have to understand the fundamentals, so the basic positions, you know, mount, side mount, guard recovery, the importance of, you know, the positional hierarchy and all that stuff. But once you understand what the game is about, it would then be specialization, right? Because I've had guys who are blue belts that tapped out black belts in competition with specialty moves. And the reason why is that they had essentially developed black belt proficiency in one technique and were better in that technique than anybody else. So if they got a black belt in that position, that black belt was in trouble. And clearly, like he tapped out a Popovich black belt like in under two minutes with a guillotine. But this is my guy, Devin, because Devin, this has a world-class guillotine. Like he'll guillotine anybody. And it allows them to advance quicker. And it's just the reality of our sport. And we continue to see as the sport grows, there's more and more game to be discovered. And you can't be good at all of it. There's just no way. You don't have enough time. So you have to pick your spots. You know? And it's funny because I think Donaher has a very similar methodology that I do in the sense that the types of games that he's focused on are the ones that I've focused on. Kimura game, mm-hmm. choke game, leg lock game, back attack game, right? It's obvious because these are the spots that are highly effective and you can end up in there in pretty much every contest, right? So if you have a mastery of those systems, you have a way of winning every match. So I would definitely, if I'm, I'm tutoring someone, of course, I'm going to lean them towards the Kimura side. <laughs> I feel that's the most versatile weapon. And it also introduces you to all sorts of other weapons as well. Yeah, because I know I've had people that I do Kimura trap system seminars or when I do my camps, and then when they leave the camp, they're getting promoted like a couple months later, you know, and they're winning tournaments using it. It's just a very effective thing. But I think in particular, the way I teach it, like you said, as a, as a system, helps people to be a lot more effective. And once you see how one system is very effective, then I, I believe they start gravitating towards having other systems for themselves. Like, okay, I know I can do Kimura's like this. Now, how do I do like back attacking in a systematic format? Or how do I do you know, front headlocks in a systematic format? Ultimately, that's like how people are going to achieve at a higher level. All my better guys have specialties. They're not all-arounders, usually. They have certain areas that they've specialized in and gotten good. And our gym, uh, Freestyle Fighting Academy, we use curriculums specifically for that reason. And I remember when we introduced it, essentially our curriculum rotates every month and we pick a few topics and we just go deep on them. And then the whole month, they're working essentially the same content, 
but every class is showing different parts of it, variations or different drills to build proficiency, but they're getting fed the same stuff. Because the idea is I want to ex- overexpose you to this thing so that you mm-hmm. can get specialty. And then some people will grab that topic and they'll just keep going with it even after that month's up. And like Devin was one of those guys. I remember where our first month we used the curriculum, I think it was like 2003 or something like that, or maybe 2005, it was guillotines. And we had three pro fighters fight, two of them won with guillotines that month. I'm like, well, it works. <laughs> curriculum works, right? <laughs> so it's been a big success ever since. So I would definitely tell them as well, train in a place that follows the curriculum, right? Mm. As a white belt. If your instructor just teaches whatever they feel like teaching that day because they saw something on YouTube or whatnot, that's not a really great model to follow. There's no organization. You'd be surprised. There's a lot of big gyms that don't really have that structure. You know, although I think that's probably rarer these days based off from what I've seen. But I remember I was running fight camps for like major teams with UFC champions and they had hired me to consult there. And I remember I would go run the training session, but every time I ran a training session, I printed a curriculum mm-hmm. and I would have it with me. I would use it as notes. So when I was teaching the class, I'm like, okay, I, I would know my place. And all the fighters got blown away. Like, oh man, I want to, can I get a copy of that? Like, I, I need to be able to study this. So I ended up having to print like 30 copies every class everybody wanted to have the take-home review plan. I found it weird that I was the only guy doing this. I'm like, everybody should be doing this. This should be mandatory. You know, like teachers don't go to grade school without a lesson plan. How can you consider yourself to be a pro instructor if you don't have a lesson plan you're working on? You know, so I feel like if I'm a white belt, I'm going to be looking for a school that has, you know, curriculums or lesson plans. There's structure. There's things they're getting through in order. Everybody's emphasis of what techniques are important is going to be different. And that's to their preference. But there should be a structure. If it's just random stuff, like, oh, Oh, I saw this in the Instagram today, so I'm going to show this. You know, that shows a lack of structure, and it's going to be hard to build off that because it's just mm-hmm. random techniques. It was kind of my experience with Jikundo. When I did Jikundo, the instructor would show maybe like 15 different moves a class. And I remember as a white belt or, you know, phase one Jikundo, I had no idea what I was looking at. So I was just mimicking everything, you know, like playing Simon Says. And when the class is over, I'm like, I don't know anything. <laughs> I was as good at imitating whatever you showed me, but it was so fast. And the next class was totally different. Like they didn't build off each other. You know, so I was always constantly like, well, like I can imitate things really well, but I don't know how any of them apply. Now, apparently I was taught a triangle choke in Jikundo. I didn't even remember that because mm. I was just trying to mimic. They were, they were moving too fast, you know? Less is more in this case. And that's why specialization is so important. So mm. that would be one of the things I would stress to a younger me to focus on. Have you guys always been like entrepreneurial like that? It seems like it because you guys have always been on the edge of all this stuff. And that's one thing I want to get to is you guys really are, in my opinion, one of the, definitely one of the OGs or the godfathers of like systems and concepts and things like that. But we'll get to that. My brother, he's definitely more extroverted and he's definitely somebody who I would say was always an entrepreneur. And I, I kind of always followed in his footsteps. Like my, my brother is a hero to me. He's, hmm. He's paved a lot of the path for me, right? And hmm. I remember back even when we were like in grade school, I was, we were always selling like airheads or like, you know, muffins, bagels, whatever you could do in school, you know, like, and sometimes it was like, you're not supposed to. So you would have it in your backpack and you're acting like you're a drug dealer. Hey, you, you want some blood pops? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Cinnamon so, sticks and the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. Or cinnamon yeah, toothpicks. Yeah. So. <laughs> so we're always doing that type of thing. So when we started training with Randy, Randy had set up a tournament for us. It was a shoot fight and there was an eight man tournament, heavyweight, lightweight division. And my brother was in the lightweight division. 
I was in the heavyweight division and my brother helped him coordinate it, you know, and we mm-hmm. ended up filling it up. And again, this is still like 1999 and we had like, it was a small crowd, maybe like 50 people or whatnot, but it was cool for the competitors. You know, there was belts and trophies and all that. My brother and I ended up both winning the, the thing. And then afterwards, my brother got a taste of setting up the event. Mm-hmm. And then he's like, let's do another one. You know, we called them mm-hmm. FFC, Freestyle Fighting Championships, right? Mm-hmm. So we did uh, another one. And that one went all right. We made money off that. So then he said, okay, we're going to set up a third one. On the third event, that's when mixed martial arts, the term was created. And unfortunately, not in a good use. Because in Florida, they made it illegal to hold mixed martial arts contests. And we, I remember because we're in the middle of promoting a third event, which was going to be our biggest one. And we're like, crap, that fell through. What are we going to do now? We over, like, you know what? We can still do just grappling tournament. And that's when we got to promoting grappling. And that was responsible for a lot of how which shaped our careers as well because uh, before that we were really more mma focused as competitors but then when they made it illegal then we had to switch our focus okay we're going to start doing more grappling type events so we started promote we teamed up with kip kohler and uh, we asked him hey would you mind if we ran events but under the naga rule set and we'll put the naga banner all that and he was very cool with us he allowed us to do that he helped us market it as well so um, we were the first people to hold grappling events like Nagas in South Florida. Because previously they were always done like in Orlando and Kissimmee and all that. We were doing them in Miami and Coral Reefs and all that. So we did like maybe, I think, eight or nine events down there. And we kind of built that grappling scene in South Florida. I remember seeing guys like Wagner Rocha. He was like a blue belt when he was competing in our events. Yeah, so it was kind of cool now. He's a big star and an excellent mm-hmm. competitor. Those initial tournaments, actually, you know, my brother did them and I was like, okay, I'll help you do this, you know, but my brother was like the brains behind that really. And uh, that raised our initial capital so that we could start our own gym. Mm-hmm. And we ended up, this was in November, 2001. So we're like now 19 year anniversary of my academy that just passed. And we opened our own club again. He was 20 at that point. Yeah, I was 20, he was 21. And uh, we opened up our own club in the strip mall, you know, as young kids, like same thing, no ranking or anything like that. And man, it's rough. Like I think people nowadays have it so much easier because yeah. When you're trying to explain to somebody what MMA is when they've never seen MMA before, it's very <laughs> difficult. You know? And then you're like, oh, step into my guard. You're like, whoa, what's this weird thing? You know? And you didn't have the UFC pumping millions of dollars in marketing that you can mm-hmm. pick back off of. You know? So it was really tricky. And I would like to say that we knew what we were doing, but we had no clue as to how to promote the business. So essentially, it was a hobby that went wild. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and I remember we were both going to college full time. You know, I was an electrical engineer. My brother was doing civil engineering. Mm-hmm. My parents, they were being super supportive, but they were like, I, I know they were like, get back into it, <laughs> to focusing on your, your studies, you know, <laughs> but that never really happened. Yeah. And this is all pre, like, as you said, pre systematic marketing, like cat there's all these academy marketing programs right now for with all yeah. these templates and stuff. And you guys are really the the astronauts, if you will, you know, the space monkeys, if you will, are going out there making all the mistakes, learning as you go, right? Crazy. Yeah, uh, particularly because we were the first MMA school in Miami. There was mm-hmm. no other school that did that. And again, we, we opened in 2001. Everybody was still doing uh, jujitsu. 
right? So they were opening up BJJ camps. And again, still at that time, like you said, to find a black belt, it was a handful. You had like yeah. the Silvera brothers, right? Conan and Marcus. And, you know, Taudo was in town for a brief moment before he went back to Brazil. And you had the Valente brothers, mm-hmm. right? Who were black belts in the crazies. So like, it was a really a handful of places where you could actually find a black belt. You know, so it was very difficult. And then us coming into the picture, you know, 20, 21 years old, no ranking, no real background in anything that people could find. Mm-hmm. And we're doing an MMA school, which nobody has ever done before. So, yeah, we're kind of at least in, in Miami. So we're, we were really in uh, uncharted territory and with no real business acumen other than just uh, determination and, <laughs> and a little bit of silliness. <laughs> it's funny too because i always thought your brother marcus was the younger one so <laughs> he gets that, that should make him he's... feel make him feel good right <laughs> you know when we were younger he wanted to be the older one but i think right now he's starting to get gray hair so let's get back to the academy david i'm curious what in your mind do you think makes an ideal academy great question so several things but I think probably the most important and sometimes overlooked is the sense of community, right? You could have a bunch of, you know, excellent instructors, you know, high paying students, all sorts of you know, stuff that looks good on paper. But if the people don't gel together, there's not like a common goal or a common belief, you start to form these little clicks inside your your academy. I'm sure you've seen it at times where you have these group of people that only train with each other or they are following a certain thing while everybody else is doing something else. And that usually ends up causing splinters. And then when people leave, they start, you know, trash talking or whatever, and you create all these silly things that happen. I believe it's one of the more difficult parts because it's essentially you have to do some sort of social engineering, if you will, we have to make sure that you're keeping your community pure, so to speak, where everybody's on the same path. There's nothing wrong necessarily with people who have different goals or ambitions, but you can't have, you know, two captains on a ship, right? You need one person being in charge, which as a school owner, that's going to be you. So yeah, there's sometimes we've had points where we had to fire students, you know, like they end up being toxic to your environment. Mm-hmm. We've had people who are doing, I don't need to get into details or whatnot, but people do questionable things or whatnot that doesn't look right. Yeah, let them go. Because Mm -hmm. keeping, you got to look at like a garden. If you have a bunch of roses and then you get some weeds in there, you leave those weeds in there too long, it's going to start growing everywhere and and kill off your roses. You know, so even though sometimes that weed might be like a black belt superstar, it's the same problem either way. You got to treat it the same. We've had it, especially with fighters. That's where it gets tricky because especially if you're a new instructor, you might think, oh, you know, this guy's a promising athlete and all that. And Mm -hmm. you want to put all your emphasis in him. But then that guy is going to skew your attention because the reality is most fighters are usually not great for business. They take up the most time and they have the least reward as far as like financially, at least, mm-hmm. you know, and sometimes just on an emotional level, because I find like my most rewarding students are the people I've seen have the most change in their life from uh, when you can get somebody who's really overweight and get them fit and healthy, confident and happy with themselves. That's a huge win, mm-hmm. right? You just made that life, person's life for the better. And you might've been the one, maybe the only person in the position to do that because nobody else would give this guy the attention for the time of day. If you're going into like a academy full of like competitors, they probably don't care about the guy who's doing nine to five and just wants to be, you know, a little better than he was the day before. Mm-hmm. They only want to focus their talents and all these superstars. 
and you get lost. As a gym owner, your focus should be on your 90% or really your 97%, which is your, your non-competitors, your people who are just trying to get into shape, trying to learn stuff, the fans, trying to just have a good time because those are the people that are going to pay your bills. The fighters usually want you to comp them, you know, free training, free this. And I think that's a mistake in itself. I've learned that throughout the years when you start giving things away for free, you start spoiling people just like you would spoil a kid. Why do you think that's so prevalent? Why do you think it's so tempting for, because I've seen that before too, the emphasis to go on, you know, maybe what you think could be the star competitor or the, the fighter versus like uh, the one who's paying your bread and butter. I think because probably they have this idea that, oh, I'm going to get this guy into the UFC and he becomes mm -hmm. a UFC champion and then I'm going to be his coach and then mm -hmm. I'm going to be this superstar coach and I'm going to make all this money from getting whatever percentage I get off this fighter. And that just doesn't really work. From what I've seen personally, like the agents and stuff like that, those are the guys that are going to be getting percentages. And even then, you know, it's unless you're the top, tippity, tippity top of that food chain, it's not considerable, you know, versus if you're running your academy properly, you should be making over a million over with your gym easily if you're doing the right thing. So I know like people are like, oh, like, I don't know, like for me, I know, I, th I think my brother feels the same way, like fighters are more of a hobby. Like they're like, I like doing it because I was a competitor. I enjoyed competing and I like seeing other people compete and push themselves to new levels. Like a guy like Jason, for example, he's such an excellent human being and great competitor. It's a pleasure to be able to be a part of his journey, but he's not our, our meal ticket. You know what I mean? Like he's just someone that I want to see do really well. You know, I pay my overhead with my online courses, with my gym and focusing on helping the students, not the, these elite fighters, mm -hmm. because it's, it's very difficult to do that. You know, there's, like I said, it's, of course it's possible, but it's not likely, right? It's not mm -hmm. like the statistically the, the way to go. You know, you have your gym set up right and you have your upgrade programs and you're following everything. You'll be making a lot more off that with a mm -hmm. lot less hassle. As you know, fighters are complicated because it's a difficult business. You know, it's very competitive. It's a lot about networking, about getting in front of the right people. And alliances change a lot as well. You know, people jump ship all the time. I have like four or five guys who are UFC fighters now that are not in my gym anymore. Mm -hmm. Right. So like people get swayed by other offers or whatnot. So it's a lot of drama you know? yeah. <laughs> whereas when, when you're dealing with you know your own gym like i said you're able to control that environment a lot easier so it's a lot right. easier to run and for me a lot more satisfying i like helping more people not just a handful you know but like i said i, I like working with fighters it's fun because they're really high level so you get to do more things with them but i see it more as a hobby it's mm -hmm. not so much the prize and mm -hmm. i think a lot of young coaches get swayed by looking for those high level guys and putting everything on them I don't think that's a, that's a really reproducible model for most businesses. It's so interesting because there's so many things uh, upon talking with various academy owners and things that I've realized or I've learned that you not only need to be a, a black belt to run your academy, whether it's jujitsu or something, but you also need to be a marketer, an advertiser, a psychologist, all these different things, all these different hats you have to wear. Yeah, you don't get that in business school, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's something that you can only get by by doing it. You know, there's certain things you can learn, right? How to market mm -hmm. to people for sure. You can learn that. How to teach is another thing you have to learn as well, which mm, for example, yeah. in our school, we have instructor training programs. We bring mm -hmm. people in and we teach them how to teach. Because as you know, you could be a, excuse me, you could be an excellent competitor, but you could be terrible at teaching just because mm -hmm. you don't have the techniques behind teaching. You know, there's a lot of different things you have to do to be able to get your message across and influence people properly. So mm -hmm. 
it's a skill in itself. And then, like you said, just the whole social part of controlling this very varied ecosystem because you have all sorts of personalities from the moms and the dads and the kids, and then you have your fighters and all that. So it's difficult. It's funny because Robert Dreisel talks about this a lot because he's like, this is the one part that's the most difficult part of the gym is managing you know, all these moving parts. Like you said, you have to be a psychologist pretty much. In many cases, maybe a psychiatrist to, to tell people how yeah. <laughs> to get them to behave, you know? But yeah, it's a, it's a challenge for sure. That's another product that you guys have on your online store is uh, psychology, right? For, yes. for fighting and, and competition and such. Yeah, my brother's program, which is called the Black Belt Psychology, blackbeltpsychology.com, right. it's there. And yeah, it's a, but that's more for the individual rather than right. obviously right. managing the gym. But, <laughs> right. it, but if everybody had that mindset, managing the gym would be really easy. But yeah, I think it's one of the things that's overlooked, although I'm seeing people now, you know, obviously with podcasts like this, people are getting more into the mindset. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've seen other courses. I think Gordon just put a course out on right. winning mindset, losing mindset. So these are all things that I think are very important, but overlooked. You know, right. I was doing mindset training back in high school. The yeah. first book I ran into that opened my eyes to it was uh, Wrestle to Win by uh, Beasley Hendricks. It was a oh. wrestling, Olympic wrestling coach, I believe, or alternate or whatnot. And it was a very simple book. It was like 80 pages, but definitely a game changer for me. Hmm. He's the one that introduced me into making game plans, into the concept of morphism and other stuff that play a huge role in sports psychology. And he had catered it to wrestling. And uh, once I picked that up, I remember I shared that book with my brother. And then my brother also studied other books like the, was it The Way of the Five Rings? Or I forget the, it's a very popular book, but a samurai that never lost a duel or whatnot. So he had read various different books and we ended up, or he ended up rather creating a system for how he gets prepared for combat and how he's essentially, this system has been passed down to all the fighters. So essentially all the people who go into our fight team, they read the book and do the course so that they can get this in because it's really important. The way you compete is usually different than the way you train and it shouldn't be, it should be the same, right? If you can compete exactly the way you train, then you already have like a world championship level of mindset. So now you just need to bring the skill level up, right? But we've seen, I've seen countless people who are, amazing in the gym but then they compete and they just completely fall apart and vice versa yeah. too i've heard yeah yeah and some people rise to the occasion right and they they do they do terrible in the gym do great in competition mm -hmm. right and it's all about stress management at the end of the day right mm -hmm. like how you handle and perceive stress is going to shape everything that you do because you could see people going to train or when you train typically you're doing live like especially open mat people are training for hours and nobody's dying right but then you go to a competition and after one match you see someone's about to pass out you know just <laughs> exhausted what changed right it was just the perception of stress right you you see a crowd you're in an unfamiliar place you're facing someone you never feared before maybe your significant others watching you and you're nervous you don't want to let them down what's the number one thing that competitors say when they lose sorry coach right why are you sorry you know like you're competing for yourself you know so mm. there there's a lot of things that that people perceive as stress and the more stress that you're carrying the quicker you're going to tire because every time you have stress it has a physical manifestation to it which usually means that you're tensing so most mm. people i know their grip goes really fast because mm. it's one of the things that you do subconsciously you're just gripping a little bit tighter it happens at a subconscious level you know your breathing is a little more labored everything and before you even step on the mats you're already kind of you're, you're already kind of tired because you've been flexing essentially or like micro flexing for hours before the event actually started, 
So being able to minimize stress levels is a key to success, which is why I like, at least in training, that's like a dose of it, right? Like the first time you go to train in the gym, even if it's a new gym, you'll probably get tired faster just because it's an unfamiliar environment. Same type of thing. You're, you're, you're fighting people you've never met before. You don't know what they're going to do. But when you go to your home gym, you do great because you know everybody, you know how it's set up. There's nothing unfamiliar. We always get stressed out by unfamiliar things. You know, there's all sorts of tactics that we can do to like make the unfamiliar familiar. And I say like for competitors, you should scope out the place you're going to, the venue, like go there a week before. Imagine what's going to be like, you know, visualization is a big tactic. I mean, this is a whole other thing, but just to the point that the, the mindset is probably the most crucial aspect of a competitor, not necessarily the skill set. Like, I know I could beat a good amount of people that are probably technically better than me, but strategically or mindset wise, I'm, I'm better than them. And I can maneuver the game into my strong suits so that I don't expose my weaknesses to them. The mindset is far more important in, in strategy than actual raw athletic ability or, or technique. The great thing is that anybody can pick it up if they're willing to. Right, like you can only have certain raw athleticism by nature, unfortunately. Right, like you, you were born with like high, a lot of fast twitch muscles, and your parents are like Andrew Gavau, you know, and, and Angelica. <laughs> yeah, you can't be born with mindset, unfortunately. Right, like mindset has to be learned, but it's also great because anybody can pick it up. You know, it's one of those things like when I hear slogans like "oh, yeah," I talk about like you're born a champion or you're born like a comp or you game. You know, like that's not true. You know, I wasn't born game, you know, <laughs> I was like, I was made that way. The nurture process so It's not, the, it's not nature that made you that way. It's nurture. You know, like I, my wrestling coach made me that way. I, people I call had, that heart, right? He's got heart. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Heart is made. It's not, if heart was born, they wouldn't have to test it all the time, right? Like when you go through like Navy SEALs and you're doing their hell week, they do it because they're trying to see how far they can take you and how much you can grow in there. Heart is made. That's why like early, like when you're younger, those, that's when you want to try someone and push them as far as you can because their body can take it and recover. Mm. But once you're older, you really can't take those grueling <laughs> training sessions anymore. You know, like, so then it's more about smart training. Sometimes I think the problem is people train like they're young forever and then you mm -hmm. break down really fast. I only learned later in life how to train smart. <laughs> I probably yeah. shaved off like five years of a, my career because of it. Let's talk about Florida because I'm curious about this academy too, uh, FFA, Freestyle Fighting Academy. As far as the gym, my brother has been running the gym. I do essentially all the online stuff, the marketing, uh, the managing the CRM, and I do emails and stuff for the, for the gym as well. He, so he manages, we have a manager at the gym that does the day-to-day -day operations. So my brother is more like the overhead, points the troops at where to go and gets them going. And he teaches classes as well for the advanced team. Well, let's get into the, the nasty topic of COVID and it, its implications on the Avalon industrial complex, if you will. So <laughs> both the online business and, and the academy in Florida. Uh, I know Florida has been much more open than some other states. Can you talk about like the impact? I know that I'm in California, several academies that I've talked to and other practitioner academy owners in other states that I've talked to, you know, everyone regularly talks about like a 50% drop off in business. And what kind of experience have you been seeing? in the peak of COVID and in the dip and where we're at now? Well, tell me about that roller coaster ride. When we started hearing about, you know, the possibility of lockdowns and stuff like that around March, you know, we were 
bracing ourselves for the worst because we're like, you know, this is going to be tough times for everybody. And you can imagine most people probably don't want to be paying for membership dues that they can't use. I particularly found it very unfair that, you know, the government was restricting businesses from operating, but they were allowing uh, essentially business leases to still be charged. It seems yeah. kind of very unfair. Yeah. I don't blame the, the landlords for charging their rent. They, of course, have to pay their mortgages and whatnot. Sure. Sure. But if I feel like if the government's going to tell you you can't run your business, okay, well, then you pay the rent then. That's a great because, point. <laughs> because you know, a lot of people get misconstrued that, oh, you know, they had all these relief funds for COVID. But those relief funds were for the staff members, which of mm-hmm. course they needed it as well. But it didn't really help the business owner because all that money is going to their staff so they can maintain it full. But now I still have to pay the rent, which is yeah. a major overhead for yeah. most of these uh, businesses. But we were very fortunate and we we're still blessed because our students were very supportive. We had wow. very little drop off as wow. far as members. Of course, we gave everybody credit and we, we did everything we could to make the process easier. Anybody that wanted to cancel, of course, could cancel. They all worked with us as a team. So we kept our numbers pretty solid throughout. And once we started being able to open up classes and to train again, it's difficult, you know, because you have to follow these guidelines, you know, and space people out. So it was a lot like mm-hmm. shot boxing type stuff, you know, so yeah, <laughs> it makes it tricky. But, you know, people worked uh, with us, you know, so I don't know how it's going to continue to go now. But as far as yeah. business is concerned, we, we've been able to hold off okay. And you guys so, were fortunate enough to have, like, as you mentioned, long history of an online business as well. Yes. So, I mean, boy, that's one heck of a fallback in addition to scenario to have in, in this kind of pandemic. Yes. And oh, that's, I'm glad you're right. I forgot about that. That was one of the things that we were doing. We were doing online classes. So, of course, mm-hmm. I think a lot of people were the Zoom classes for the boot camp, for kids, for the martial arts, you know. So that yeah. helped keep people busy, you know. And it's surprising because sometimes you're like, oh, are people going to show up? I'll tell you what, the, the boot camp for the women went really well. You would have like 40 people in there just to see the Zoom screen just all scattered with people That's jumping amazing. around and stuff. That's so, awesome. One of the great uses of technology, you know, is keeping people healthy and, and fit, making sure they're entertained because, yeah, it was, it was a bleak time. So hopefully we don't return, you know, to that because, yeah, I don't know another wave of that, how it would go. So going back to the academy that your brother runs too, I was looking at it and you guys offer all kinds of stuff. You guys offer, like you mentioned, huge kids curriculum as well as uh, adult stuff. You do MMA there as well. I even saw some sort of shooting tactical kind yes. of uh, option as well. I mean, you guys have the full gambit of, uh, of combat education. Yes, that's something that's also helped out tremendously, particularly because my brother was well before this. He got involved in firearms and uh, mm-hmm. using them for self-defense and whatnot. He's mm-hmm. trained all over the, the country. He's went to Israel to learn things as well. So like he's been ahead of the game. And, you know, with how the world is now, more and more people are starting to get scared. And when they get scared, they want some form of protection. And mm-hmm. ultimately having a gun or a firearm is going to be your ultimate self-defense tool. I tell people it's the ultimate equalizer because if you're an older person, you know, or you're disabled, you know, you're seven years old, you're not going to fight off somebody using jiu-jitsu, right? It's just not as realistic, but everybody can just do this, right? And <laughs> that's a game changer, you know? So 
it's definitely, and especially as an American, I think everybody should learn how to use a firearm. The knowledge of it brings awareness and takes away a lot of the fear some people have. Just like heel hooks. People are like, oh, heel hooks are too dangerous. Oh, when you train them, then you learn how to deal with them. Same thing right, with right. firearms, you know. You can teach kids how to use them. And once they understand what it is, it's a tool, then, you know, it works better. And especially for gym owners, my brother was trying to help people out because he's like, look, this is one business that's considered an essential business. He was able to run that business uninterrupted. People who follow my brother, you know, they've done really well with that. I know he has a bunch of martial arts school owners that started doing the firearms training and they're really thankful for it because their business has been skyrocketing. So, and plus, as you said, if you are truly about self-defense, weapons is a big part of it, right? Mm -hmm. And firearms is definitely going to be something that I think most people should consider having some sort of regimen. You know, it's not just about shooting or safe handling of the gun. They do disarms and stuff as well. Like it's all around, you know, it's another thing that's fun to do. Yeah, anybody who goes shooting, you have a fun time. You know, I think it's like Daniel Tosca. It's like, you know, money doesn't you know, make you happy, but I've never seen someone crying in a jet ski, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Shooting's a lot of fun. I don't know why it is. It seems kind of silly just firing a projectile, but it's fun. You know oh, it's I mean? a blast. I know when I went to Vegas uh, sometime back, there was this uh, shooting range there where you can shoot any type of gun that you want. And I got to shoot the full gambit of uh, all these different weapons. And boy, was it was it a blast. Full automatics, uh, all kinds of stuff. But yeah, especially when you shoot an automatic. My brother had an Uzi at, yeah. at the time. He, he had to you know, register all that. And you just hold the trigger and you're like well that's like 50 bucks now <laughs> yeah exactly yeah it's <laughs> it's not a cheap price. hobby <laughs> no it definitely is not especially with the prices of rounds nowadays i gotta say david you look great man you know you look <laughs> healthier now and one thing i noticed too in some of the recent photos that i saw of you too is are, are you taking like um strength conditioning much more seriously now or, or what because you look much more toned and stuff versus you know don't take this wrong back in in these days you know yeah yeah, yeah. no i was i'm i'm right now in the best shape of my life as mm. far as like physically aesthetically i'm not training as much just because of everything going on and your age if you don't mind sharing that yeah, i'm 39 right now okay for the listeners so, you guys for the listeners <laughs> so yeah i'm 39 <laughs> right now but uh pretty much the couple now it's like two years ago i had a acl reconstruction on my right knee and before that point i was pushing 214 i remember it was like october 2018 i'm like man i'm kind of soft at this point like i i'm good at under 200 pounds that's where i'm like i've competed my whole life like between 185 for mma and 193 and a half for adcc so hmm. that's the range where i'm most proven effective but I've never had a six pack before. I've never been shredded. And I always just subscribe that to oh, genetics that I don't get ripped up easily. And there's a part of that, that that's true. But when I was going to get a knee reconstruction, I thought like, man, I got to clean up my diet because I'm going to be unable to move around for a bit. And I'm already 214. I'm going to start pushing up. I'm going to get more weight and get fat even fatter than I am right now if I don't start cleaning up. So I started doing intermittent fasting and calorie deprivation. And I've always used like apps like MyFitnessPal and whatnot to track stuff. So I started doing that. And I did that for three months. And once I had the knee surgery done, I got my weight down to like 200 within a couple of months just with intermittent fasting and mm-hmm. just counting my calories. So it worked pretty well. And once I was able to start doing some exercise, like I was starting to walk a lot, then I started to bike and then I started to jog. In another couple of months, I got myself down to like 184. I was at that point like skinny fat though. I wasn't, didn't have any real muscle tone or whatnot, but I was just a, a lot lighter. That's when I started getting into weight training because I'm like, you know what? 
I don't want to be skinny fat. I want to be, you know, strong, functional. So I started doing weight training. I started putting on weight. So I got up to like 197 or so, but that was a lot more solid. And I got tuned to this guy called uh, Jim Stepani. He's like 50 something, but he's a bodybuilder or whatnot. But he was also a research doctor or whatnot. So he had all these studies talking about the different ratios you should have of macros, like your proteins, carbs, and fats and all that. Made good sense. I started following his thing and I started measuring my body fat as well. And I started at like 15.6% and whatnot. And over the course of a year or so, I got myself down to 11.9%. Once you get below 12, you start getting ripped. And then for the first time in my life, I'm 39 and I have a six pack and I'm lifting more than I've ever lifted before. You know, I'm stronger than I've ever been. And my cardio is pretty good. I can run and do all sorts of workouts. So I learned that it was just bad dieting. I've, what I've always done was I, I just counted ca- calories. That was my thing, which works to an extent. You eventually hit a plateau there, and then I just never knew what to do when I hit the plateau. It's just, okay, yeah. keep cutting you know, more. And uh, this guy had a good regimen of how to modulate when you hit these plateaus. But what I've learned is that macros are, are definitely very important in your ratio, not just the calories you eat. And particularly about what I've learned is that throughout, because I've actually been using my fitness pal since like, I think when they first made it, I think it goes back to like 2011 or something like that on my phone. So I can look back through all the times I've dieted before. And my protein was always way low compared to what this guy, Jim was saying and other people that like usually now they say like for athletes, they want you eating one gram of protein per pound body weight. I'm eating about 1.2 grams of protein per pound body weight, half a gram of fat per pound body weight. And then those two numbers are essentially kind of fixed for you. And then the, the number you modulate is your carbs and you vary the carbs based on your goals. So you're trying to lose weight, then you're probably going to lower the carb amount. If you're trying to gain weight, you're going to step it up a bit. So I've gone as low as 0.25 grams of carbs per pound body weight to right now where I'm at two grams. I'm pretty much maintaining at this point. I'm sitting around 197 now and I'm good there. And I'm able to get leaner at that same rate and I'm eating whatever I want. But if you follow my blogs or whatnot, I'm eating a lot of bison these days. Delicious. It's uh, If you like beef, you'll, you'll love bison. And it has a third of the fat that regular beef does. So like it's a very lean meat, has a lot of B vitamins in it. It's a much more nutritious animal than your regular cow is. So yeah, I've been eating a lot of that and I've made my diet essentially, I cleaned it up a bit. But now like, I know a lot of people suffer through dieting and it's just unnecessary. You just have to do it right. And intermittent fasting is one strategy, but some people have this flawed idea that if you just intermittent fast, you can do whatever you want. And that doesn't work either. Really what intermittent fasting is, because I've done, I did it for like nine months and then I stopped because it just started becoming impractical with my work schedule. And I still have been able to maintain the same weight loss with really no effect. So what I realized was that the intermittent fasting, all it's really doing for the most part, it's limiting your window to overeat, right? Because essentially you have, if you're doing like this typical one, the 16-8, you only have eight hours to eat. So it's a lot more difficult to do damage or when you have your late night cravings, if you're keeping discipline to that eight hour window. If you eat whenever you want, you wake up at midnight, you're hungry, you hit the fridge, you pound some, you know, ice cream, whatever, and you go back to sleep. Now you overeat, right? I know they say there's some like, like it retards the rate that you, your body would normally be energy efficient. So in that sense, it's making you burn calories faster. But I don't know, from my experience, it, the only thing it did, it just makes it harder to overeat. So if you're disciplined and following, like you'll eat a certain amount of calories 
in these macro ratios, you'll still lose a good amount of weight and put on muscle at the same time. But I encourage my guys now, like, especially if you're older, like I would say get into weight training because the things that, that scare people about training is injuries. And I get it. Yeah. You know, I had a knee surgery. I'm actually getting a surgery next Friday on my wrist. Wow. It's minor, but I have some scar tissue in here that's been bothering me for about a year. I just got to get it scraped off. So that won't bother me. Yeah, I get it. But what hurts you in training is the unknown again, right? Like it's very rare where someone gets injured in training from like drilling a technique or practicing a move the coach taught you, right? Like it happens in sparring, right? Yeah. Because you're doing something, someone else is doing something and you guys didn't coordinate. And then you, you know, you zig when you're supposed to zag, mm-hmm. tear your knee or whatever, right? And when you're doing weight training, that is much harder to do. You're dealing with an inanimate object that you're the only one moving. So if you know what you're doing, which is a big if because a lot of people don't know what the hell they're doing in the gym either. But if you know what you're doing, it's very difficult to hurt yourself. Not impossible, but very difficult. When I started doing weight training now, I approached it like I was training jujitsu. So I started watching videos of every technique. Like, oh, how do you do a bench press the right way? And how do you do the squat the right way? How do you do a deadlift? How do you do all these things? And I started studying it. I would film myself just like I would do when I was practicing jujitsu and watch the video afterwards and compare it to like someone who knows what they're doing or ask someone who knows what they're doing and for notes so I can get the technique properly. And then once I got the technique, then start stacking up the weight more and more. Because for me, the weight training is to make my MMA better, not vice versa. So Mm -hmm. a new guy that I've been following is Chad Wesley Smith, Juggernaut Training Systems. He actually trains with a lot of the guys at Humhula, Bahal School, like Mm -hmm. Octavio Sosa and others. He's a jiu-jitsu blue belt, but he was also a power lifter. I think he squatted like 980 pounds. So the guy is a... (laughs) He's a beast. But so it's good because you have a guy who understands that world, but then he's also in our world as well. And then... Uh, he has essentially given out these different metrics of things to look for. But one of the things I like that he says, like, if you get hurt in weight training, you're an idiot because you're supposed to be a jiu-jitsu athlete. The, the, the weight training is to make you safer right, for your jiu-jitsu right. training, right? right? So I like that because it removes the ego away because I think a lot of people, like when you see gym fails, people are hand, trying to lift way more than they should be because they're trying to impress somebody, you know? Having that type of understanding has made it a lot. So the weight training I found a lot more enjoyable and, and I think a lot more practical. And I think from a health perspective, for people who struggle from losing weight, the more muscle you have on you, the more calories you're going to burn, which gives you more leeway to eat more. Because nobody likes eating like a parrot, you know, just eating very little and it's, it's miserable, you know. And yeah. for fighters and competitors, this is one of the things I learned now, which I'm like, man, this would have been useful years ago. Which old school days, like when you would fight, you would essentially be in calorie deprivation the whole time, starving yourself, you know, and then you make weight, you fight, and then you pig out. And then you repeat the cycle over again. Whereas our fighters now are in shape year round, right? They never fall out of shape because the hardest thing to do is to train in a calorie deprived state because you don't have as much energy and you're going to gas, making more likely to get hurt because you're fatigued and you're undernourished. So ideally you should always be at a healthy weight, you know, probably somewhere between, I would say like 12 to 14% body fat if you're Mm. an athlete. Because once you start getting below, I would say probably around like 10%, it starts being very difficult to maintain, Mm. right? But for fighters, they might have to for the weight cut or whatnot, right? But ideally your weight cut would just be water, right? You wouldn't have to actually diet differently because you've maintained a solid weight where you're at. 
and then you're only doing a water cut. And then after you do that water cut, you replenish, but you were able to train at 100%. I've been there where I'm deprived of calories, training and getting smashed by everybody because I don't have enough energy, I'm not nourished. And I'm training for like three months in a fight camp at half speed. I just had to have faith that once I fully fed myself, I'd be able to perform at 100%. But the problem with that is that means I had three months of garbage training, essentially, or non-optimal training. It would have made much more sense if I was fully nourished those three months. So I had three months of excellent training, and then I got to fight also at 100%. Again, it's just a discipline thing. It's just about being disciplined year-round maintaining good, healthy weight, and then being able to, if you have to do your cut, you just cut in water. You don't have to worry about like extreme dieting. If you have to do those extreme diets, chances are you didn't prepare properly because you were Mm -hmm. undisciplined in pre-fight camp. Can you tell us a time when you witnessed something special, perhaps, you know, a student of yours or a client of yours or something like that, or you've seen a moment of growth like with them or yourself? Well, there would be a lot of moments like that. Yeah, I figure. One of the most special individuals that I've met, I've already mentioned, which is Jason Suarez. If I give you a little bit of his backstory, you probably can understand why. He came to us, young guy, he had some wrestling experience in him, but no martial arts as far as like jujitsu and whatnot. He must have been a young guy, like early 20s. He was a blue belt with us, and he had a promising future as an athlete. And he had a motorcycle all the time. He was riding in the keys. An older guy cut him off. And he ended up hitting that guy or that guy hit him. I forget the story, but either way, he was launched from his bike, like 90 feet, rolled. And then he popped back up, said, oh, I'm okay. And then passed out. They ended up having to airlift him into the hospital. He had broken ribs, fractured tibia, spiral fracture of the knee, rupture of the Achilles tendon, like all sorts of damage. And he was bleeding internally. And the chances of his survival were grim. After doing the, you know, exploratory surgery, trying to find, you know, you know, what was bleeding, they eventually were able to to save his life. But at that point, he was a mess, right? He was on a, I guess, a, an oxygen and one he couldn't breathe on his own. And his whole family and my brother were there. And the doctor was explaining, you know, the, his situation. Like, look, it's going to be a long road to recovery. Chances are he's never going to be able to do sports ever again. He's going to be a very difficult time learning how to walk again. And it's a very somber mood in the OR room. And then Jason has a little notepad that he writes in and he shows it. And it says, coach, get me a fight in three months. I'll be ready. <laughs> All right. So you can imagine a young guy like stricken down in his prime. And then to the co- everybody in the room, it's like he doesn't understand the graveness of the situation. Right. So he's in the hospital for a bit. When they release him, the first thing he does, he rolls his way to the gym in the wheelchair. And he starts hitting the heavy bags on the wheelchair. All right. So it's that type of mindset that he had. And my brother and I, we had the idea like, look, He's probably never going to be able to compete again, but we love this kid so much that we want to make sure that he's taken care of. So we're going to keep him around the gym. And my brother started teaching him about business and whatnot. And uh, he then got off the, cr- the wheelchair and then he was on crutches. And then he started hitting the heavy bag on the crutches. And that made us very nervous because he missed, he falls, you know, it's a mess for like... Yeah, I was like, no. And then he said, okay, I want to do the weight room. He's like, no, no, okay, but someone has to be with you. Weight has to be super low. Like, you can't have pressure on your internal organs, you know? They were just scrambled up. And eventually, he's off the crutches, and then he's walking again. This is within a couple months. So, like, he's, like, recovering exceptionally fast. And then there's a point that he's like, I want to go into class and train again. And we're like, okay, but, like, you can only do technique, no explosive movements or anything. So, he starts doing that. 
And now at a certain point, he goes, I remember I'm, I'm doing live training and Jason goes, okay, I'm going to jump in. I'm like, Jason, no, you can't do any live training. It's not allowed. He's like, no, 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 it's okay. Master Marcus told me I could. I'm like, he told you you could? He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, jump in. I was like, man, that, that doesn't sound like my, what my brother would say. And then he's sparring. And then my brother comes in and he starts freaking out, yelling at me. Hey, what the hell are you doing? Why is he sparring? I'm like, he said you gave him permission. No, he lied to you. I was like, oh my God, this kid. But he did it because he snuck his way. He did okay. You know, I'm like, all right. I guess he can start doing some grappling. You know, so he was doing grappling. And then he's like, I want to compete. And I'm like, oh my God. Right? Like, how far can we go? And uh, we talked to the mom and the mom was very supportive. And, and he takes after his mom. His mom is a firecracker. She's a really great lady. And um, we're like, okay. We'll put him in a, in a Naga or something. And then he crushed it. He won first place. He ended up it was like, okay, I guess he keeps competing. And he ended up getting a grappling record of 22 and one. He avenged wow. the one loss by submission that he had. And he won the FILA Grappling World Championships for the US. I think that was in Serbia. And then uh, at that point, he's like, I want to fight MMA. And we're like, oh, you know, that's, I don't know. Same type of thing, though. He just he persistent, kept pushing, 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 pushing. And finally, like, okay, we'll do it. You, and his first fight, I think, was in Mexico, won by TKO. And then he just kept winning. And he ended up, right now, he's 14 0, 12 finishes by knockouts, submissions. He can do it all. And uh, he's in the PFL. So hopefully next year he, he gets in and fights. But he's been successful at pretty much everything I've seen him do grappling, fighting. He's an excellent poker player. Like he comes here to Vegas and he just he comes back home with a couple thousand dollars every time he plays. I'm like, I don't know why you're not doing this more often. Like, he got into golf. He's really good at golf now. Wow. He does the online business also. He's been mentored by my brother a bit, and he makes good money doing that too. So, like, he's just all around. Like, he's like one of the, the greatest athletes that we've made, and probably is the greatest athlete just empirically. We've never made an athlete with that great of a record before and that dominant, and just as an individual as well. You know, he's just all around a good guy. So it's like I'm proud to have him as a black belt. You know, he's a, yeah. he's a good model of what I want, not just as a talented athlete, but as a person. Mm-hmm. And there's a, there's a character value, you know, to being a black belt. Because earlier on, we promoted some people and then I look back on, mm, damn it, you know, like they didn't turn out quite the way I wanted to as a person, you know. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's my failing or if it's just I can't control everything. But he's one of the more remarkable people that I've had the pleasure of being a part of their journey not to dismiss anybody else there's other people that have, have helped along the way i mean we had a guy like charles mccarthy who was a ufc veteran and uh he came to us massively overweight he was like 300 something pounds never done sports in his life and uh he was just a major ufc fan he was back in the mixed martial arts.com forum right when that was a big thing you know and the <laughs> yeah. bulletin boards were the internet you know people would discuss yeah. And, bbs yeah yeah the bbs exactly and he was big into mma he was a super fan he knew a lot of stuff and then he started training with us got in good shape and we got him into a ufc fight fortunately he drew david lavazzo which was not an easy fight <laughs> <laughs> it didn't go his way you know it happens but now he has his own gym and he makes his own fighters and stuff and he's doing well you know not everybody has the same path you know but he's done well we were part of his journey you know we've been blessed we've worked with a lot of people we got to work with kimbo slice you know just another one george masfield all started with us in his mma Gosh. career so we work with a lot of people you know but of those i think i think jason is at the top just because he's taught me a lot as well I learned from him how to get through injury. Mm-hmm. I, remember I asked him after, I'm like, Jason, how did you get yourself 
back to 100%, like yeah, so fast. Insane. What did you do differently? Did he say, I'm the Wolverine? <laughs> I would explain a lot. Right? <laughs> but no, he's like, I just never left the possibility of another option. Mm. Right? Like he said, the only thing that I was going to be able to do was this. Mm. So I have to find a way to make this work. Right? And he pretty much did everything he possibly could to further that goal. And uh, one of the things for him, he said, I just did it as much as I could without pain. Essentially, I used the pain as a signal. If I was feeling pain, that means mm -hmm. I'm going too far. But if it's just like soreness, you know, that's fine. And I used that myself. Remember, I had shoulder problems for years. I, I babied and it never got better. And then when I started applying those principles that he did, man, shoulder's good now. You know, wow. I get, when I got the knee surgery, I pretty much did everything I possibly could. Like, I think I started running on my knee maybe two months after surgery. Yeah. When I heard you were running after the knee surgery, I'm like, whoa. That's, yeah. So, that's, like, you know, that's high impact for that kind of, you know. Yeah. I'm surgery. a heavier guy too. I'm like 190 mm -hmm. pounds, you know, so it's not like it's definitely more weight, but it was just mindset. Like, because now I look back at any other injury I have and then I compare myself to Jason. Mm -hmm. and I'm like, whoa. Mm -hmm. I remember my shoulder bothered me for years mm -hmm. and I would just be, ah, my shoulder. And then yeah. I, I kind of like yeah. being a little baby about it. And I'm like, man, Jason survived near death and he was back training three months later. I got to push myself, you know, I got to do everything besides pain and make it better. And mm -hmm. now I've embraced that. And I pretty much tired. Like, I guess the metaphor I tell people that it's like the pebble in your shoe. A lot of times we have like these little pebbles that we're just walking with for miles and miles and miles. And I, in this case, for example, my knee was actually torn five years ago. But I didn't know it was fully torn. I, I knew there was something wrong with it, but I'm like, oh, whatever, you know, I just mm -hmm. deal with it, deal with it. Yeah. But towards the end of it, I couldn't wrestle. I remember when Kit Dale was over here, I was helping him prepare for ADCC. Mm -hmm. It kept locking out of me. Like my wrestling sucked. I didn't have balance in it. Mm -hmm. And as a result, my other knee kept getting hurt because it was overcompensating. It was, yeah. it was balancing for two. Once I got that fixed, my left knee is no longer giving me problems anymore. And I thought I was going to have to get surgery on this one, but I didn't. I just needed the right one to be okay, so that it wasn't getting overloaded. But I realized, man, I essentially lived five years of my life with a poor quality of health and such a poor quality of life because I wasn't able to run before the knee surgery. It would hurt too much, you know? I wasn't really training that much because... It would bother me, you know. Mm -hmm. I could. So I was depriving myself of living my life to the fullest because I was being stubborn and letting that pebble jam me. You know, it had to hit me in the right spot before I'm like, okay, take the shoe off, clear it, you know. So mm -hmm. what I'm trying to do now is the moment I feel a pebble, I'm taking the shoe off, you know. Mm -hmm. It might be kind of a nuisance because, for example, this is going to take six weeks off, but better now than later down the road when I'm not able to do things that yeah. these things prevented me from doing. So, David, I know you're not deep into the gi, but can you tell us, how did you learn to tie your belt? Oh, poorly. <laughs> if you ask me to do it now, I would say 5 out of 10, 50, 50, I would probably get it wrong. I only put on a gi a handful of times, like I said, just to meet the requirements to be promoted respectively. But then well, one thing that's unfortunate with me is I can forget things very fast, mm. incredibly fast. Like people mm. ask me all the time, like my girlfriend teases me all the time because we had some electrical issues in the house. She's like, oh, why don't you fix them? I'm like, Jamie, I knew a lot of book theory like 15 years ago, you know? I don't know nothing now. You know? Yeah, I'm the so, same way. What I've been always very good at is I can learn things very quickly, like a mm. sponge. I could also get ringed out like a sponge and forget them just as fast. Mm -hmm. It's the whole RAM thing then, right? It's like a random access. Yeah. <laughs> I, think I, mean? I'm, I think I'm all RAM. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All RAM. 
that's why I, I have to be really honest. I try to practice it as a principle that to never lie, just always tell the truth. And, that's uh, great. So you're not doing any fancy uh, belt tying? <laughs> no, no, I'm not. I haven't put on a gi like Polly and over. I think the last time I put a gi on was in Andre Galvao's gym. I went over there to train and this was... Well, good for Andre for getting a gi on you once once more to well, give it a go. <laughs> there, there was two people that got gis on me. Zanji, yeah. I trained with him. Yeah. And then so uh, Galvao. And of course, they both gave me oversized gis, which wasn't yeah. cool because <laughs> my collars were like up to here, you know? My, you yeah. know, my not my collars, <laughs> but my sleeves. So like everybody was sweeping me all over the place. Like, I couldn't escape anything, you know? I managed to survive. Well, David, thank you so much for being so gracious with your time. I want to be respectful of that. Can you let the uh, listeners know where we can find all the information about you and your offerings and everything? For sure. Pretty much, if you visit my blog, which is davidavalon.com, I also have it. You can just go davidmma.com. I know the spelling is going to be a lot easier, and that will take you there. And all my social medias are using my full name, David Avalon. Like I said, on my blog, though, they're all linked if you need to find them, but you go to davidmma.com, that'll take you there too. And I put up my videos, my newsletters. I offered like my news email newsletter now has like, I think like 200 video techniques, all free. Wow. Join it and you get access to it. Of course, I have courses that you could purchase. Like I said, if you were alluding to, if you want a DVD, they're pretty much about to, they're going to run out pretty soon. If you want a collector's <laughs> item. Other people. Try to, <laughs> try to explain to kids what that was. Yeah, what for. this is. Yeah. I'm holding yeah. up the, uh, the DVD packet for you people that are listening of uh, yeah. the Camaro Trap system. Uh, they can pick it up there. I have links to all my courses on my website. So that'd be the best place to go. Well, thanks again for watching and listening out there. I am Adolfo Ferranda. You can catch us at F Forever White Belt. Just Google us. And thanks for listening. Give us the thumbs up, the subscribe, all the positive feedback. And again, thank you so much, David, for your time. Oh, it's my pleasure, Adolfo.